Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dove, and today my guest is Dr. Brian Kornblatt. Dr. Brian Kornblatt is a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine graduate with a PhD in pharmacology and molecular sciences and a postdoctoral fellowship from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Environmental Health Sciences Division of Toxicology. Dr. Kornblatt has been involved in medical research since 1990. His main research interests are focused on developing novel formulations comprised of natural-based phytochemicals, including isothiocyanates to minimize chronic inflammation and combat the threats of environmental toxicants. His most recent development has been a novel line of products called Avmacol, which developed the essential ingredients needed to support the production of sulforaphane, phytochemical with many emerging indications. Dr. Kornblatt is currently the medical director and director of product support for Nutramax Laboratories. In these roles, Dr. Kornblatt develops novel nutraceutical formulations, designs both in vitro and clinical studies in support of products, and summarizes both supporting laboratory and clinical research for healthcare workers as well as consumers. As you guys could tell, Dr. Kornblatt has an incredibly impressive background, and you'll see in today's episode just how deep and wide that knowledge goes. Now, if you enjoy the content on today's episode, please follow me on Apple Podcast. Now, to do that, just click that plus sign at the top right of your screen, just above the show logo. I'd also love to hear feedback, so it would be super awesome if you left a review as well as a five-star rating. It really helps out a lot. In today's episode, we cover a tremendous amount of ground on the topic of sulforaphane. Now, before I jump right into the episode, I want to first give you guys a brief primer on sulforaphane for those listeners who may not be as familiar as some other people. But before doing so, I must first share the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Root of the Cause podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatments that we discuss on the show. Okay, so now for the primer on sulforaphane. Now, sulforaphane is a powerful health-promoting compound referred to as a plant phytonutrient, and it can be obtained primarily from broccoli sprouts. Now, technically, broccoli sprouts don't actually contain sulforaphane, but instead it contains its precursor molecule called glucoraphidin. Now, the enzyme myrosinase, also found in the sprouts, is activated when the plant tissue is crushed, chopped, or chewed, and is then used to convert the precursor glucoraphidin into the active compound sulforaphane. Now, myrosinase also exists in our guts in varying degrees, depending if we host this still-to-be-discovered class of microbes that could produce it, and thus helps to further assist in the conversion of glucoraphidin into sulforaphane. So now keep in mind that scientists hypothesize plants use myrosinase as well as glucoraphidin as a defense mechanism. So basically, when an herbivorous predator or insect or pathogen consumes the plant, the plant uses myrosinase to convert the glucoraphidin into sulforaphane, which acts as a toxin inside the animal's body to sort of ward off future attacks. Now, in humans, the sulforaphane instead has a hermetic effect, meaning it acts as a small stressor that results in future resilience. This is then followed by a cascade of antioxidant responses, as well as dozens more well-researched beneficial biochemical reactions, many of which we'll be delving into in today's episode with Dr. Kornblatt. Okay, well, I hope you guys enjoy the show. And without further delay, I present to you Dr. Brian Kornblatt. Dr. Brian Kornblatt, welcome to the show. 
Nice to meet you uh, through this podcast. Really excited to share some interesting information with you and your viewers today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on, man. So, look, you are clearly one of the leading experts, if not the leading expert in sulforaphane. Now, before we get deep into things, would you first share with us what led you to become so interested uh, in the study of sulforaphane? Absolutely. And um, my story actually starts back in 1990. Um, I was a junior in high school and one of a, a very close family friend actually contracted a rare form of cancer called neuroendothelioma. Um, his name was Andy. He actually succumbed to his cancer after six months of very heroic treatments at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Um, one of his doctors actually took me under his wing, uh, Dr. Mario Gorin. And um, after Andy passed, I, I worked in the laboratories, the cancer laboratories there um, as a high school student, you know, summers and winters. And I did this throughout college as well and got very interested in, in cancer and wanted to be a, an oncologist and treat kids with cancer. But one of the things that I always wonder was, how is it that Andy got his cancer? There really wasn't much of a family history. And what we found out is um, the area where he lived in Owings Mills, Maryland, there was a high concentration of chromium mines. And a little interesting fact, in World War I, it had the largest concentration of chromium producing mines anywhere in the world. And the chromium would be sent to the shore um, down in Baltimore and put in some of the ships that were heading over to Europe. So part of the, part of the armor. So long story short, um, that got me the first kind of interest in the fact that some of these environmental toxicants, like in this case, a metal found in the earth can actually lead to serious and, and deadly disease. And so, you know, I, I was very interested in cancer at the same time. I was curious that it wasn't just genetics. And then we'll bump up. I was blessed enough after my five years of research in the cancer labs, I got accepted to Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And again, wanted to be a pediatric oncologist, was well on my way. My second year, you know, we just had a unit on the colon and colon cancer and ulcerative colitis and other things that can go awry with the colon and intestines. When I went home to visit my folks, just to show them I was doing well, and believe it or not, I diagnosed my dad that afternoon, first real diagnosed with metastatic colorectal cancer. Um, he was just having just unusual bowel habits, and uh, you know, all the telltale signs were in the stool. And um, the next day was when he actually went to his internist and ultimately a colorectal surgeon and, and got the news. Um, and I owe a lot to sulforaphane, good attitude, exercise diet. My dad, I'll see him this weekend. My, my parents live about a half an hour away. He's one of my biggest heroes ever. He defied the odds over and over and over again. And um, if you saw him, you would never know uh, he was sick. And so how I got, to answer your question, um, how I got interested in sulforaphane. So I was at Johns Hopkins. I wanted to treat cancer. I lost my friend Andy, almost lost my own dad. I was pretty pissed off, as most people would be. Like, you know, we just kind of sit there and we wait for cancer to take hold of us. And we just kind of sit there, like, you know, like 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 a, like a deer just in the headlights. Um, I was like, there's got to be ways to prevent cancer in the first place. So I went all around Hopkins trying to find any lab that was doing some interesting studies on this. And I came across three labs, Dr. Talley, Paul Talley, Dr. Jed Fahey, and then Dr. Tom Kensler. And all three had a commonality. They were all studying sulforaphane, a phytonutrient that had just been discovered literally years prior. At the time in 1996, when I first uh, found out about sulforaphane, there were three publications. There's over 1,500 today. Um, it's been an amazing journey. I um, actually wound up leaving medical school. I wound up just uh, pursuing my PhD and then a postdoc fellowship, and I just fell in love with sulforaphane research. And with those three and some others, we actually did some of the first human clinical trials. So it's been an incredible life journey. I've been doing it now for 22 years. So, Wow, that's amazing that your dad is doing so well. I, I was hoping that's the direction of the story. I was hoping that's the direction it went. And that's amazing. So yeah. I wanted to actually ask you, you said there was chromium. Is that 
sort of a different sort of compound than the mineral chromium that we tend to use for for blood sugar, let's say? Is it become sort of toxic in the amounts that your town was receiving in the soil? And I think we'll touch upon this a lot throughout this afternoon. It has to do with the metabolism. So there's a lot of these elements and chemicals out there, you know, in the external world that when outside, they're kind of benign and inert and won't really harm us. But when we take them in, whether it's breathing or, you know, through water or through our foods, our liver ultimately and anywhere where our body first sees the outside world, so our small intestines, our lung, we have these uh, cytochrome P450 phase one metabolic enzymes that start to break down which these largely fat-soluble substances into something water-soluble through a series of enzymatic steps so we can remove it from the body in sweat, urine, and feces. And it's the metabolism of chromium that creates these reactive oxygen species, these kind of dangerous substances at the cellular level that can bind to and harm DNA, proteins, and lipids, the good fats um, that make up our cell walls and other things. So it's actually the metabolites of chromium um, when it's ingested or inhaled that can actually cause a lot of the problem. So great question. Oh, that's incredible. So an otherwise beneficial mineral, if not actually excreted and detoxified and processed, metabolized properly, and I'm sure there's it's dose dependent as well, could wind up becoming significantly harmful. Absolutely. Yeah. Because as you as you nailed it perfectly, some of these minerals and trace minerals are, are coenzymes, cofactors for our enzymes, you know, that right. allow our enzymes to, to do what they're intended to do, like selenium for the glutathione as transferases and some of these others. And um, yeah, at the right level, and each one is a it's interesting. It really has to do with our genomics as well, um, based on our the DNA we acquired from our parents, right, and then subsequently relatives prior, um, determines how much we really need as an individual. It's not really set in stone, but there's a there's kind of a, a little threshold there, but certainly too little, you're going to have some problems, and too much, you'll definitely run into problems. Wow, that's so interesting. So I wanted to jump into sulforaphane and talk about what sulforaphane is widely known for, which is NRF2 and NRF2 activation. Now, could you tell us first what NRF2 is and how sulforaphane affects this pathway? Sure. And so I think we have to go all the way back to the ancients who said, let food be thy medicine. So what sulforaphane really is, is this incredible phytonutrient, phytochemical, that's found in a class of vegetables called the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, wasabi. And the reason I've been spending, like, why would I spend more than two decades of my life on this one compound? It's, it's because exactly NRF2 was the first real pathway that we kind of stumbled upon, and not me, even my predecessors. And I would say I'm the third generation now, so for researcher, Dr. Paul Talley and some of the Japanese colleagues started this, you know, less than probably 30 years ago now. And then they trained um, Tom Kenzer, John Groupman, and Jed Fahey, and then I was trained by all of them. So it's been a pretty incredible journey. But the first um, kind of pathway molecularly at the cellular level that was discovered was NRF2. And for your listeners who may not know, NRF2 or NRF2 is a transcription factor. And these are amazing kind of uh, proteins at the, at the cellular level. These transcription factors actually can go into the nucleus and bind to certain parts of our DNA and turn on transcription and ultimately production of enzymes and proteins. And remember, proteins and enzymes are the workhorses at the cellular level. So the amazing thing about NRF2, it's normally sequestered in the cytoplasm, so outside the nucleus, inside a cell. And when a substance like sulforaphane is produced in our body, it enters our cytoplasm and releases NRF2. And then NRF2 goes into the nucleus and binds to certain regions of DNA, very specific regions, upstream of more than 100 
cytoprotective phase two detoxifying and antioxidant enzymes. And let me back up and share. So how does sulforaphane get made in our body? Where is that coming from? Hmm. So let's take broccoli as an example. Broccoli has two main components that are needed to make sulforaphane. It has the glucoraphanin, which is a glucosinolate. That's the sulforaphane precursor. And it has an enzyme myrosinase. And when an insect or us, we chew on the plant, inside our bodies with the right pH, we actually create sulforaphane. It's called a hydrolysis reaction. And then we form sulforaphane, which is known as an isothiocyanate. So important for your listeners to know, sulforaphane isn't found naturally in plants. The precursors are. Right, right. And then the myrosinase, if we were, if we were to ingest it, the myrosinase in our gut enables us to actually convert the glucoraphanin to sulforaphane, correct? Yeah, and you mentioned the gut. So there's about, um, and we had done, as a medical student, we actually, I don't know, well, I'll just share that we did some clinical trials or in our first couple of days at school, we would get a drink from Dr. Paul Talle back in the day in his lab, and then we would collect urines. And we didn't know where this was going or why we were doing this. It's kind of interesting. This is the 90s. I think you were allowed to do looser trials. But they, what they were doing is seeing how many people, when they just ingested glucosinolates or glucoraphanin, how many med students converted to sulforaphane. I think at the time it was 65 to 70% of us. So about 65 to 70% of us do have myrosinase in our bodies. It's not made by human cells. It's actually made by bacteria. We still haven't directly identified which bacteria. The problem with the microbe-directed or, or made myrosinase is it's our, our diets, drugs like antibiotics, stress can impact the levels of myrosinase that we make. So, um, And I can share, when I develop some products, we actually um, bring in exogenous myrosinase from the plants, the crucifers themselves, so you get consistent levels. So you're, you know, if you give enough of the glucoraphanin precursor, you can make consistently enough of the sulforaphane daily instead of relying on your gut microbiome. And I always think about, I have two daughters. Um, they might be in that 25 to 30% category that have absolutely no myrosinase. So you can eat as much glucoraphanin as you want. You'll never convert it to sulforaphane without an external exogenous source of the myrosinase enzyme. Is there a way to determine the level of someone's myrosinase? Is there an assay for that that exists, be it a stool test, be it a blood test? Or is it just one would assume if you have leaky gut and all the symptoms that come with it, it's likely that there's a low amount of myrosinase and you're probably not going to get much from taking the, the glucoraphanin? Well, I can tell you a little bit later about our clinical trial stories, but um, for our clinical trials, we work with academia. So there's two labs that I know of that don't do this for the public, but specifically for clinical trials. One is a cyclocondensation reaction where we can actually um, collect urines. And what we do is we give the precursor glucoraphanin, and you'll know if a person has myrosinase if you don't give it exogenously by collecting sulforaphane metabolites in the urine. That's called a cyclocondensation reaction. We also have another lab on the West Coast, again, academic only, not for public use. Right. You actually take blood and urines and actually do a mass spec, look at sulforaphane and sulforaphane metabolites. Again, if you didn't give the myrosinase enzyme, the only way you'd be able to produce sulforaphane is if that person had the right microbiota producing the myrosinase enzyme. I wish and I beg that there's third-party labs that can develop nice assays to assess glucoraphanin content and myrosinase content, say, in our foods, as well as you know, if we have the ability to easily be able to convert to sulforaphane. Or even the product myrosinase to be put into a probiotic blend potentially. Is that, do you think that's something down the line, maybe a company would jump on? Well, you could, but I'll tell you something much cheaper and easier is to just do what we do. And we provide glucoraphanin myrosinase in a tablet. You know, I ultimately left academia 
on purpose because we kept doing all these trials with stuff Dr. Jet Fahey made in his lab, non-GMP, you know, in the Hopkins lab, nice lab, but nothing for commercial use. We finished our studies, have nothing to offer the participants or the world. So I left and joined a company where we actually created something that's very easy, I think much simpler than even probiotics, which require, you know, the good ones, refrigeration and a lot more laborious um, details in terms of making that that high quality probiotic with, with the Maracinius. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So I wanted to jump into, we had spoken about NRF2 and I think a lot of the talk about NRF2 is surrounding glutathione. I think glutathione tends to get the most press. So I want to ask you regarding glutathione in the context of sulforaphane. First of all, maybe you could describe to us what glutathione is and how sulforaphane impacts it for starters. Yeah. And so you're lucky day two. So my thesis work was on prostate cancer and specifically a gene that's turned off early on in the carcinogenesis pathway for patients to go from a normal male to getting prostate cancer is called glutathione transferase pi one. So GSTP one. I worked on that exclusively for four years of my life. Oh and wow! Really to know glutathione well. So glutathione is quite simply a tripeptide. So it's cysteine, glycine, and glutamate. These are three amino acids, and they come together with different uh, enzymes. The rate limiting one is glutamate cysteine ligase, and once it's in our body. Um, it's actually a antioxidant, so it actually helps to um, oxidize and reduce, depending on what what the uh, the reaction is. It helps to actually um, get rid of some of these oxidants, whether it, they're internally produced, like from our mitochondria, or externally derived, like say from soil or the air or some of the food and water that we consume. So it's the body's main antioxidant. Um, I will say it's interesting in the story of sulforaphane. So sulforaphane does actually upregulate glutamate cysteine ligase, the rate limiting enzyme. So something good there is if you have listeners, and I don't want to hurt any other company, but if you have listeners that might be getting IV glutathione or taking oral or sublingual glutathione products, um, you can absolutely stop taking those and try a sulforaphane producing product. It's going to end up being a lot cheaper in the long run. And we also know, um, I, I might have uh, not shared this with you in, in some of our prior discussions, that there was a study done um, for one of our precursor for some of the schizophrenia work done on sulforaphane, where they gave oral glucoraphanin uh, along with the marasinase enzyme, and then measured both blood levels of glucoraphanin as well, or um, glutathione, as well as um, using a T7 MRI, so a very high quality MRI, they were actually able to, to measure glutathione levels in the brain, both before and after um, giving orally the, the precursor. So pretty amazing. That was oh, um, that's amazing. And and what was the what was the half life of that? Like, how long did that actually? How long did the levels maintain uh, in the brain? Did, were they able to get that far? Yeah, so it's hours and hours after and I can tell you the formula dynamics. So for, the, for your listeners too, pharmacokinetics is what our body does to a substance like sulforaphane once it produced how it's broken down and eliminated and metabolized. Pharmacodynamics is what the actual substance does to our body. So for our discussion at the cellular level, how does it impact, for example, gene expression, protein expression, the production of glutathione? We know that a single dose of sulforaphane can actually lead to a pharmacodynamic response up to 72 hours later, so three days later. You still oh my see God, that's amazing. It increases in these phase two enzymes, glutathione level increases. So it's a pretty powerful response at the cellular level. Wow. So essentially with maybe one bolus dose, it'll last for upwards of 72 hours. And it depends. It's very person specific. So we sure. have averages of how much a certain starting dose of the precursors or sulforaphane itself, what that will lead to. But everybody, it's, it's a little bit different, but um, we can talk about bioavailability a little bit later. If you yeah, like. for sure. So 
I'm glad you brought up the like the enzymatic process in making glutathione because my concern, and I don't even know if this is unfounded or not, but I, I wanted to ask you, my concern with taking glutathione is the potential downregulation of your own internal production via glutamate cysteine ligase inhibition. Now, do you think there's any merit to that concern? And especially given that you, you know, your background on glutathione, I'm, I'm yeah. glad that, you know, I could ask you that question because I've been wanting to know kind of definitively for a long time. And that's always been my impression. Anything that your body makes, one would assume logically that if you're taking an exogenous source that you're going to downregulate your own internal production. So what Absolutely. are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We'll start with glutathione first. So I think it's just a really inefficient way to deliver glutathione is to take it exogenously. So for example, I've even seen glutathione gum and you have to take copious and copious amounts of glutathione or N-acetylcysteine to really even get higher levels of glutathione in our body. Um, when it comes to sulforaphane, so this is absolutely remarkable. So sulforaphane, you know, we take the precursors, glucoraphanin, marasinase is found in nature we ingest it in usually our stomach, our small intestines, we create sulforaphane. And then sulforaphane itself, it's not normally supposed to be in our body, right? So it comes from the outside world. So we start to metabolize it. And the first process is through glutathione as transferases. So a glutathione conjugation starts to metabolize away. And we end up measuring in the urine a dithiocarbamate metabolite of sulforaphane. So um, another great question we always get asked is, can you take too much sulforaphane? And I, we're trying to, we always think in our camp here after studying this now for over two decades, less is more. And the more sulforaphane you make, the more glutathione, if you have the precursors you make, and the more you just metabolize it away. So it's almost like we think there's going to be this threshold, each person probably a little bit different, where it's almost like silly to just keep taking more and more because all you're doing is ramping up the metabolism of the substance you want to create in the first place. It's almost like a, like a safety, uh, fail-safe mechanism. In yeah, a way. that's interesting. So in those cases, do you think maybe adding some of the precursor, like since you're increasing right, the rate-limiting step, the, the glutamate cysteine ligase enzyme, since you're increasing that, ramping it up, do you think it stands to reason that taking any uh, acetylcysteine as just a, as a precaution, since you're ramping up that process, you might be actually burning through your precursor molecules in the process of upregulating that enzyme. Do you think that would maybe be a smart idea to do in those cases? No, it's a smart idea. People are doing it now. So um, we actually, we launched our product line in 2011 and people take our products along with N-acetylcysteine. I'm usually integrative functional medicine physicians are recommending this. So, you know, I have a good colleague down in Austin, Texas, um, that actually does, Sharon, that actually does this for most of our patients. They get our product, Abmacol, along with the N-acetylcysteine precursor to glutathione. And um, But I would really like to see a study. We haven't done that yet, just to see, do you really need the NAC? But, you know, in theory, it's not going to hurt. If anything, it's only going to help. But um, again, it'd be nice to do a, there's so many studies, like probably through the course of our talk this afternoon, probably come up with a dozen studies. Hey, boy, it'd be really cool to, you know, investigate placebo versus um, Abmacol versus Abmacol plus N-acetylcysteine and really see if we get some differences in those two later groups. But yeah, okay. again, I know a lot of people that take that combination and it certainly doesn't hurt at all. Yeah. And I don't want to create the impression that I'm I am personally anti-glutathione. I just think there are some pitfalls that I think people aren't really recognizing. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of practitioners as well aren't really focusing on the fact that, okay, you take this glutathione, be it IV or oral, 
And you also need to make sure the patient is able to recycle the glutathione, which means you have to know, you know, about FAD and ADPH. You need to make sure that riboflavin, niacin are on board. And if you're creating all this hydrogen peroxide, you need to make sure selenium is on board to convert it to water. And if these things aren't on board and you're not checking the nutrient status of these people who presumably probably have a low nutrient status to actually warrant the visit in the first place to need the glutathione, you could in my opinion, you might end up making the person worse. And then all of a sudden, this glutathione becomes demonized by the patient. Oh, this is hard, especially if there's a sulfur sensitivity, they don't have molybdenum on board, and they end up with a migraine headache afterward. And now they're going online saying glutathione is a sham. So I just think it's not right. It's not that simple. The devil's in the details, right? Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree. And I would say um, nothing against glutathione. Again, I spent all my years of my thesis, you know, work uh, working on glutathione as transferases. It's just, it's, it's one single antioxidant. It's a major one, but why I love sulforaphane, and we can get into some of the other pathways, is it doesn't just help to increase glutathione, but it literally upregulates over 100 phase two detoxifying enzymes. So I, you know, joke around with people, you could be completely depleted of glutathione, and if you take sulforaphane, you're still gonna upregulate plenty of antioxidative and detoxifying enzymes. There's a lot of redundancy at the cellular level. So right. I like things that have bigger bang for the buck, so to speak. And in terms of bucks, you actually pay less to get this bigger bang for the buck if, you, if you're getting the right product out there. In the yeah, marketplace. no, that makes so much sense. So let's maybe jump into talking about heat shock proteins, right? Yeah. So it's my understanding that sulforaphane could sort of mimic the effects of sauna therapy by inducing the protein HSF1, which then, from what I understand, leads to the increase in heat shock proteins. So right. if you would, could you maybe help me to expand on that and um, tell me maybe where I went wrong? You didn't go wrong at all. That was perfect. So HSF1 is very similar to NRF2. A heat shock, it's a, in this case, a heat shock protein transcription factor, again, normally found in the cytoplasm and with various external stresses or an agent like sulforaphane or a phytonutrient like sulforaphane, it too will end up in the nucleus and bind to specific regions upstream of genes and turn on a whole production of, in this case, another protective class of enzymes. So now we're talking about our second class of enzymes that's upregulated, in this case, modulated by being upregulated at the cellular level through the presence of sulforaphane. These are heat shock proteins. For those of your listeners who may not know what a heat shock protein is, these are usually produced during times of cellular stress. So increased oxidative stress, increased heat, like if we have a fever. So the way to think about it is if, um, for those who don't remember high school or say college or even middle school biology, you know, our proteins, we've talked about the proteins and enzymes being the workhorses at the cellular level. And you kind of can think of them being made up of these amino acids that are all strung along in a specific pattern, kind of like a strand of spaghetti. And then in our ribosomes and endoplasmic reticulum, they get folded up exquisitely into a specific 3D shape. And stresses like oxidative stress, you know, changes in pH or even heat can actually start to denature and unwind these strands of spaghetti. And when that happens, you can't reform that right strand of spaghetti. It usually gets broken down. It could become toxic, like we know about these tau proteins with neurodegenerative diseases. So these are kind of kind of misshaped proteins. So the problem is with heat, our proteins kind of get misshapen and they don't function. So how is it that we can survive a fever? Well, it turns out these class of heat shock proteins seem to be impervious to even 106 degree temperatures. They themselves don't unwind and they actually become chaperones and protect key proteins that are vital for our survival in our kidneys, our hearts, our brains. And so these heat shock proteins, again, are upregulated in times of cellular stress. And, um, and, and so that was the second pathway that was discovered that are induced and upregulated 
um, through the presence of sulforaphane at the cellular level. So again, for those listeners who are following who aren't molecular biologists, we're inducing the NERF2 uh, phase 2 detoxifying enzymes, and we're inducing now heat shock proteins. Both classes are really protective. So with that one sulforaphane, unlike glutathione where you just get it, you have one antioxidant, sulforaphane, this one entity, is able to induce now hundreds of protective proteins, including heat shock proteins and phase 2 detoxifying enzymes. Wow. So if, if I understand this correctly, is a lot of the, the research on heat shock proteins and what we understand from about heat shock proteins, did that come from um, the early research in sulforaphane? So it was actually interesting. I, I myself and other researchers that were studying sulforaphane, we came across this in that it was just kind of a globe. So, so part of the work I did early on in my thesis work was using microarray technology. Pretty amazing. So let me just share the journey of science. When I started in high school, I remember when I lost my friend Andy, unfortunately, it would take us a whole week to look at the gene expression or upregulation of a single protein. Then by the time, say seven years later, I'm working on my thesis at Hopkins, we had discovered others on microarray technology. This was the ability to take um, mRNA from a single cells and actually be able to look at thousands and thousands of genes literally within say three hours from start to finish. So again, it took me a week to look at one protein. Seven years later, I'm looking at 23,000 different protein oh. or gene expression signatures from cells. It was absolutely unbelievable. So when we did these global searches, uh, okay, let's give sulforaphane to cells and cell culture, and then let's look and see which cells, are, which genes are upregulated, which genes are downregulated. We found out that heat shock proteins were upregulated. And so um, I can tell you this amazing journey in the autism world, if, if you're ready, if not, we can, we can hit that particular story a little bit later. But yeah, no, lay it on me. That, that's perfect. I yeah. want to hear it. So here's an amazing thing. So I never thought, so, and I got interested in sulforaphane, remember, because of cancer prevention, okay? And, and what I should say too, the very first mechanism, so I talked about NRF2, you brought up heat shock proteins. So actually, um, the, most of your viewers, and there won't be a quiz or test afterwards on this, but <laughs> if, if you were an audience, I would ask you out loud, you know, does anybody know what the number one cause of cancer-related deaths globally is? And it actually happens to be stomach cancer. And the major cause of stomach cancer globally is H. pylori. And the, one of the first things ever discovered with sulforaphane by Dr. Jet Faking and colleagues is that sulforaphane actually is able to downregulate the replication of H. pylori microbiota in our um, you know, GI tract. So pretty amazing. So talking about, boy, this That's could be horrible anti-cancer agents. And then once we discovered NRF2 and phase 2 enzymes and heat shock proteins, it, yeah. it kind of opened up the doors to other things. Go ahead. Is the mechanism of that more immune system related or does it actually work as an antibacterial or both? So it's very interesting. I'm just um, curious. We don't, we don't have to get too deep with H. pylori. I was just curious. It's both. And don't quote me. Jed would kill me that I forgot, but I'm pretty sure it's the urease enzyme that's produced by H. Right, pylori. Right, right. Without being able to produce that, the H. pylori can't replicate. I will share that's totally amazing. Is I mean, there's so many mechanisms. It's almost like this is too good to be true. We know from sulforaphane studies alone that it actually upregulates natural killer cell activity macrophage activity. We can get into the immune system later. These are, especially during times of COVID, these are wonderful ways to not treat, but really kind of help to upregulate and, and get us stimulated so that we can mount an effective response to incoming microorganisms. So it has antiviral, antibacterial properties. 
Yeah, like, and I actually, I actually recently heard on a video, Dr. Rhonda Patrick was talking about actually the upregulation specifically of the adaptive immune system within the elderly population who tend to have their adaptive immune systems with age kind of plummet. So yeah. that I don't know a lot of the details of that, and I don't know if there is a, there's a ton of data out on that, but I think it's pretty compelling nonetheless, especially today with COVID and so forth. So yeah, it's yeah, amazing. I want to get to the heat shock and autism, but let me just take a slight detour because Dr. Rhonda Patrick is, you know, we would all agree an amazing person, has the, you know, um, some great knowledge there. And in terms of, um, for the viewers too, so they know about the innate and the adaptive immune response. So the innate re- immune response happens almost immediately, you know, so you can right. think of things like histamine and when some people get rashes or hives, when they get a bee sting or, you know, maybe um, ingest something that they're allergic to. And this has to do with things like our natural killer cells, macrophages, some uh, basophils, some of these other um, cells of our immune system. And that's that that quick response that's really, you know, it's there to really protect us right away. But then when we don't uh, mount enough immune response and these microorganisms start to grow in our bodies and we need something more, that's to your point, the adaptive immune response. And we're talking about T and B cells here and antibody production. We have a combination product that we can talk about later that combines all the um, the glucoraphin and the morassinase to make sulforaphane plus beta-glucans that we actually tested in an influenza mouse model that actually we showed that it actually creates more antibodies against the influenza virus. So it's the combination of sulforaphane plus these beta-glucans actually induces our ability to make antibodies against the in this case, a viral challenge influenza. Pretty amazing stuff. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. I, I always think of the adaptive immune system as like your snipers, right? Yeah. They're more targeted. Mm-hmm. They're more skilled. Whereas the innate, they're a little kind of wilder. They're just kind of like your front line. They're always on making sure that nothing gets in where the snipers are a little bit more strategic. And if you don't have the snipers, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, it's kind of testosterone driven. I think our ways of doing these analogies are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. It's the military. I do a castle and I have the guys with the hot cauldrons of like, you know, just boiling stuff and they're just dumping it haphazardly down. Those are like our innate immune system. They're just, you know anything that gets in their way they're just dumping it it might cause some um impacts too on the gates and the castle itself so it's kind of harming ourselves as well and the innate immune system does that um the archers are exactly like your snipers depends on yeah. which decade or center you're in the archers go selectively after people as they're climbing up the ladders trying to get right and there's w- there's far less casualties with the sniper as well yeah exactly. lateral damage yeah yeah and our so. antibody response usually but to get back to um what i think was one of the most fascinating things so i would say if I was speaking on behalf of all the sulforaphane researchers out there, we never thought there'd be a link to autism until um, Dr. Andrew Zimmerman at UMass um, got in touch with one of his colleagues. And, and Andrew used to be at, at Hopkins and um, knew Paul Talley well. And they were talking together. And it turned out that Andy and some of his other colleagues who were treating children with autism, about 60 to 70% of kids with autism, when they get a fever, doesn't have to be an amazingly high fever. It could be 100 degrees. All of a sudden, a child who for years is no longer talking, no longer, you know, um, saying verbally anything, no longer looking at you, is having this stimming, repetitive behaviors, irritable, you know, maybe very lethargic. All of a sudden, while they have a fever, is is literally, quote unquote, normal. The symptoms go away, like melt wow. away, which is absolutely unbelievable. And I always tell people, I had a brother with Down syndrome. You don't see that in kids with Down syndrome. What you get is what you have, and that's it hard to really change those symptoms. Here's something as simple as a small fever, you know, a degree or more. And all of a sudden these kids are, 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 are kind of normalized. And then all of a sudden you give an antibiotic, which I don't always like to use because of the kind of like the cauldron effect. These antibiotics aren't just archers. They're selective, they're non-selective for hundreds and thousands of different strains. And 
it's a whole nother day's discussion on the microbiome effects, but you give Tylenol, Advil, sorry to name drop there, some of these brands or an antibiotic and the fever goes down and the kids become autistic again. You know, they all were autistic, but the phenotype, the symptoms right, start right. to come back. It becomes so, expressed. Yeah, so you can imagine um, this kept happening more and more and it's coming up at meetings with child psychiatrists and, and pediatricians are like, how on earth can we give kids microbes without hurting them? You know, could you give them LPS, lipopolysaccharide from a bacteria cell wall? You could kill kids, but like, boy, what can you do? And then it just so happens serendipitously that Dr. Talley, as I heard it, is having conversation with Dr. Zimmerman about the fact, you know, sulforaphane induces heat shock proteins. Those are upregulated when we have a fever, perhaps maybe molecularly, we can mimic a fever in kids with autism using sulforaphane and see what happens. So they thought enough about this, that that hypothesis was kind of, uh, it drove some grants and they got a grant. And in 2010 and 11, they launched a study using sulforaphane materials that were made by Jed Fahey and Hopkins, again, non um you know, GMP, just kind of in a laboratory, but for clinical trial use, published in 2014, ultimately, and it was amazing. It showed that sulforaphane given to kids for 18 weeks with autism spectrum disorder, their symptoms would go away. And then from 18 to 22 weeks, you just watched. It was like a light switch. And all of a sudden, the symptoms came roaring back. Sadly, it was published in 2014. But when they did the study, there were no products like ours yet that had the uh, glucoraphanin and marasne. So just like I was saying why I left academia, we would do all these studies and then never have anything to give these people after. And so, but that was the first true kind of um, test and study that proved that sulforaphane really could help kids with autism. And we thought it was because, okay, heat shock proteins, we're inducing them. We're also inducing phase two detoxifying antioxidant enzymes. But most importantly, the third pathway we haven't talked about, the NF-kappa B, another transcription factor, when it gets into our nucleus, it upregulates all these cytokines, chemokines, metalloproteinases. For those who don't know, that's inflammation. And an overabundance of these daily and every hour daily, that's chronic inflammation. We know that from biopsies, um, you know, from autopsy studies that kids with autism and anybody with any kind of neuropsychiatric or neurodevelopmental um, anomaly has high neuroinflammation. And if you tame the neuroinflammation, you tame whatever they have and you tame the symptoms. So collectively, we think all those pathways were being modulated. And that's why we see the results we do in the autism community. We now have five actually Abmacall autism studies. Um, two have been published and we have two that are finished in publication drafts and then one more that's still accruing, um, both here in the United States and in China. Wow, that is incredible. That's incredible that there's an actual nutraceutical like or like Abmacall that there's actual studies on the original hypothesis. But it's amazing that it's not on the cover of the New York Times, especially because autism is on everyone's radar today, everyone. And so it's just it's so compelling, that story. So with this cover, I would imagine it would cover like the whole spectrum. And depending on the severity, would it cover sort of everyone, regardless of how mild or severe the symptoms of the autism are, I would imagine so, right? And I think I'm probably going to use this phrase a lot, but um, it's another terrific question. Um, so the reason people ask, why are there five different studies? And the other thing, why it's probably not on the cover, because we're a dietary supplement company. So the only thing we advertise about is the structure function. You know, we're inducing or modulating these pathways at the cellular level. We don't initiate these studies. You know, once I left academia and people found out we created this product, the researchers came to us, you know, hey, can we use your product in our study? So again, we're not doing these studies and initiating them, but but we're, you know, we're able to make match placebos also, which is great, blinded placebos and actives, and we, we allow them to be used in these studies. Um, it's, it's 
Unbelievable. Again, I think the reason you don't hear about it is because we're not advertising. You know, it's kind of this this little hidden secret, unfortunately, and it's kind of podcasts like this and others that even get parents aware that there are these things available. I will say the most compelling thing, again, not just having a, a brother, he did pass, unfortunately, from respiratory issues who had Down syndrome um, to the families that are affected by some of these people um, higher in the spectrum. I mean, it takes a devastating toll, not uncommon because there's really no great treatments for parents to take out second mortgages, you know, and the, right. some of these kids. And what really gets me, you know, I was on the medical side, right? So I'm kind of dangerous. I was on the, I was in med school. I, I got my, my PhD. I went from treatment to prevention. Most of the kids that we see when we ask the parents, you know, what are they on? They're on 14 to 20 different things, including supplements, including pharmaceuticals like risperidine and some others for, um, um, I've even seen um, some chemotherapy agents, um, you know, pharmaceuticals that have never been tested for kids with autism at all. And they're spending thousands and thousands of dollars a month on these unwarranted kind of, you know, treatments. And the only thing the treatments are doing is making them sedated and zombified. It's not helping them at all. Yeah, right, right. It across America is so drugged up on all these pharmaceuticals and other dietary supplements. And um, it just kills me. And, And if I can just put my... I had on here to represent the industry. I wish we would all do clinical studies the right way. And um, I think there's a lot of products that are being used in these kids that just aren't warranted and aren't helping and maybe even causing worse outcomes. To get to your question, though, why are there five studies? It's because you're right. They're looking at all different cohorts and different types, you know, low to moderately affected to moderate to severe on the autism spectrum disorder. So we're looking at different cohorts, different both male and females. Some are looking at symptom relief only. Some are looking at a lot are looking at biomarkers now. One that was published recently uh, looked at urinary biomarkers. Um, Dr. Zimmerman's pilot study was just published four months ago, looking at blood-based biomarkers. We can give kids with autism our Abmacol before we get the blood. After a couple of weeks later, we get the blood. We see increase in phase two enzymes, heat shock proteins, and decreases in inflammation. What we saw two decades ago in the cells, we're now translating and seeing in these actual kids now in these clinical studies. It's pretty amazing to see that being translated finally into the work that we're doing. It's, it's wow, really that is, that is incredible. So first of all, I'm, I'm very, very sorry to hear about your brother, but I will say I'm sure that just further helped fuel your passion you know with the knowledge that you have and the industry that you're in you know i'm sure he comes to mind when you're doing this work so i really appreciate the work you're doing it's incredible regarding sulforaphane particularly avmacol because it's so efficacious for autism spectrum disorder would you recommend even us you know an infant taking it maybe crushing it putting it in their food as just a preventative, because as you know, oftentimes a parent does not know that the child is autistic until later on. And oftentimes, you know, it develops later on. There's so many variables at stake. So do you think that would be a wise idea? Um, just again, as a preventative. That's a great question. Um, like maybe a smaller dose, obviously. Yeah, as a uh, as the purest scientist, I want to do some studies, obviously, on maybe a high. And I think we're getting to the point now with genomics. You know, again, my friend Sharon down in Austin has a company, Intellects DNA, where they're working on an autism panel, looking at SNPs and genomic oh, amazing. sequences. So I think we'll be able to see prior to hopefully diagnosis yeah. that these kids have a high predisposition. And that'd be a great study we can do. That study isn't done yet. So I'd, I'd err on the side of caution and say it's sure. not going to hurt, but certainly I can't promise that's going to help. But I will say some of these uh, studies, we have kids as young as six months old. Um, the nice thing about our product... So, we can talk a little bit first about the product is a tablet. Everybody asks, why isn't it a drink? You know, why don't you make sulforaphane? I'll start with why isn't it not a drink? It's because 
um, the glucoraphane and the meristinase enzyme, they can get oxidized pretty easily. So we made it into a tablet because the tablet matrix actually protects this tablet. And you don't just want to make something that has like a two-week shelf life. We've actually tested it. It's dated right now for two years. We have some of our original products back in our um, warehouse from 2011 that to this day are still good in terms of glucoraphane um, kind of content and the meristinase um, enzyme content. Uh, we used to have an interior coated, but that brought on extra ingredients, which a lot of the parents, especially in the ASD community, you know, less is more here. They didn't want us to have those ingredients. So we removed the interior coating. It's actually now a crushable tablet. And once you crush it, you can put it, we say to put into cold things. Remember, um, heat can actually denature proteins. Meristinase enzyme is a protein. You don't want to heat it and activate it. So you can crush it and put into like yogurts and applesauce smoothies, and then, you know, children can ingest it. And, and that's exactly what they're doing. Um, but like I said, we do have kids as young as six months old that are that are taking our product. Um, and we have different guidelines in terms of dosing if you're under 100 pounds, 101 to 199, and 200 pounds plus starting doses, and then uh, recommendations for what happens, you know, a, a couple weeks on the product. Most everybody titrates down to, believe it or not, two tablets, um, two tablets a day, even though some of the heavier people can take 16 tablets to start the sure. first couple of weeks. They all titrate down to about two and they still get some good responses. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, let's maybe, uh, let's talk more about the product Abmacol that you designed. So sure. I want to ask you, other than the convenience factor, why would someone want to take Abmacol over consuming, say, broccoli sprouts? Yeah, and that's a great question. I've been at nutrition conferences. I've given talks all over. And um, let me start by saying I eat broccoli. I'm not an anti-broccoli guy at all. And I think we need to continue to eat our crucifers for all the micronutrients we talked about earlier, some of these micronutrients and other phytochemicals. But when it comes to, you know, we talked about, is there an easy way to test, for example, a person if they have meracinase? I'll throw it back even further. There's an easy way to test vegetables if, or a seed or a sprout or mature broccoli head, does it have glucoraphane and meracinase? Absolutely not. It's heroic testing. It's only done in academia. You don't go to the store and see a head of broccoli with a quantified amount of glucoraphane and meracinase. And the scientists prior to me at Hopkins actually went to markets and would take broccoli from the same producers, the same areas in California and across the U.S., and actually quantify. Some days it would have glucoraphane, some days it would have meracinase, some days it would have neither. So you're not going to get a stable amount. So that's the main problem. Um, so that's why, for example, I was like, you know what, I'm going to stop being a purist and tell everybody to eat pounds of broccoli. And instead, let's create something to make it much easier. The other problem with the sprouters, as you know, if you're young and old, when you sprout, you have a lot of risk with all the water, if you're not doing it right, to introduce microbes. And that can be right. very dangerous for people who are young, people who are old. Some of my colleagues from Hopkins actually had a company that used to be, they, they sprouted broccoli seeds into sprouts. So they actually sold broccoli sprouts at grocery stores. And there were enough PR hits, public relation nightmares, where there'd be outbreaks of microbial contamination that it just became a nightmare from a you know sales perspective. So they actually dropped that line and actually got more interested in the dietary supplement area. Um, the other thing too, people often ask, why didn't you just create sulforaphane? Why did you, why did you make, you know, make it so hard with glucoraphane and meracinase enzyme? It's actually a selfish reason. Myself and a couple of my mentors who taught me, when we take oral sulforaphane, it is horrendous. Um, and we hear this. There are some products out there that do deliver sulforaphane. You have to always freeze them. It's laborious from a, um, you know, from that perspective, a logistical perspective. But when you ingest sulforaphane, we get a lot of belching, burping, indigestion. You feel like you're in a vomit, um, heartburn. And people are often like, well, why is it okay to take glucoraphane and meracinase but not sulforaphane? And my 50,000 foot like quick answer hypothesis is over the course of decades and, and millennia and thousands of years, 
we've been able to figure out how to deal with glucoraphanin marasmase and you know we usually ingest it goes into our stomach goes into our small intestine duodenum jejunum and we have the capability to then absorb sulforaphane but sulforaphane is tech and orally that's not normal it's not found in nature so the other thing is is um the precursors are found normally right in the veggies the sulforaphane isn't if we were to create a product with sulforaphane we'd have to take the precursors in a laboratory do something to it that then becomes a drug and early on in 2011, I joined Nutrimax in 2010, we asked regulatory attorneys, hey, would it be okay for me to sulforaphane? Absolutely not. That would be a drug. Again, you're taking something from nature and tweaking it in the laboratory and then putting it into a pill or a tablet. That is a drug. So it's outside the realm of what we could do in the dietary supplement industry. And we wouldn't want it to be a drug. We had always hoped with sulforaphane, the early researchers, that it would be a safe, effective very inexpensive way to really um, promote health and wellness. And luckily we've created a product that maintains all that. It's very inexpensive for, for general month supply. And there's no need to do it, right? If you add the myrosinase and your body just naturally works its magic organically to actually make the sulforaphane without overriding ventral processes and giving you, you know, horrible GI distress and presumably less absorption, I would imagine, just from a standpoint of you're probably excreting a large degree of sulforaphane if it's giving you that distress. That's just a, a guess on my part, but I would assume so. Yeah, we can talk about bioavailability. So the simplest terms, remember, so these are some key terms. Pharmacokinetics is what happens when sulforaphane is made, gets into our cells. Um, how is it broken down and, and metabolized and excreted? That's pharmacokinetics. Pharmacodynamics is what happens when sulforaphane enters our cells and turns on and upregulates or downregulates gene expression, turns on protective enzymes, downregulates part of the inflammatory response, that's pharmacodynamics. Bioavailability is, okay, how much when we get into our GI system even gets into our bloodstream? Because what you have, you ingest it, it gets through our intestinal wall, it has to get into our bloodstream and then into our cells. That's bioavailability. So there's lots of great work and my mentor, one of my great friends, Dr. Jed Fahey, he just recently retired from Hopkins. He found out that if you take sulforaphane, it's 70% bioavailable. So let's just say in the simplest terms, you give 100 units of sulforaphane, 70 units, 70% will end up in your bloodstream getting to our cells. The combination of glucoraphane and marasmates, it's 35% bioavailable. So for every 100 units you give, you're going to get 35 going to your cells. Then when you give glucoraphane alone, remember we talked about some people have marasmates, but then it's it, it's all right. really, only 1 to 3% bioavailable. So you have to take copious amounts of glucoraphane to even get a, an appreciable amount of sulforaphane made and then ultimately um, the bioavailability. So yeah, so we're right there in the middle. Um, we're not just glucoraphanin, we have that 35% bioavailable, but what's nice is um, you don't get the GI disturbances like you do with sulforaphane, and you don't have to give it large amounts which become economically unfeasible of, of just the glucoraphanin. So it's a nice yeah. kind of middle ground there. Yeah, so it's interesting. So it's sort of a misnomer when companies are calling their product sulforaphane, it's mm. technically not sulforaphane. It's almost like calling NAC glutathione, right? It's, I, it's, I, I agree. And there's products out there. You know, I won't name it. When I came on board in 2011, there was a glucoraphanin-only product. It was a broccoli florette, diced-up broccoli florets, um, $4.99. And it even had an asterisk. This is in 2011. We reached out and took it off. It had my, so my last academic paper was in 2007 in carcinogenesis, a breast chemo prevention study we did. And it actually had the dosing was based on my paper. It said Cornblatt et al. 2007 carcinogenesis. Oh, and wow. when you look at the amount 
we took it into our lab to see how much glucoraphanin. We needed 14,500 tablets to get the daily dose we gave to the humans in that study. And that yeah. was so misleading and wrong. And it was $4.99 a bottle. So again, in our industry, the thing that stinks is I think people look for value and they don't look for quality. And I would say when we launched in 2011, we were the first product, late 2011, early 2012, with glucoraphanin and meracinase. There's now over 100 products globally that claim to be sulforaphane, broccoli-based products. Um, the main differentiator I tell everybody is make sure that any product in the dietary supplement space has been clinically trial tested. Number one, in the U.S., we have to get it through the FDA. You know, the research is get it through the FDA. Also, why would anybody invest any amount of money in a product that's not consistent lot to lot? You know you're going to get horrendous results. So you're only going to test the high-quality products. And then once you have a clinical trial, you know it's safe. You can figure out dosing. It's not just a you and I in a boardroom saying, let's do 10 tablets the first two weeks, then two the next, you know, we actually have a rationale for dosing. So I, I say this to, you know, there's tens of thousands of dietary supplements out there. If you just do the barometer of how many have been clinically trial tested of that product, not just parts of the whole, here's another thing I hate is somebody might say this glucoraphanin material has been tested in clinical trials. That's like saying the four tires in your car have been tested on another car and the whole car is safe. That's not true. You're just testing, you know, the tires sure. only a small feature. So you really need to test the actual finished good. And when you do that, I think you eliminate 99% of dietary supplements on the shelf today. Please, by all means, um, as a person who makes dietary supplements, gives them to my kids. My mom's also a cancer survivor. My, my own parents are taking this. I would only give myself or anybody something that I know is safe and efficacious. The only way you're going to be able to tell that is through a clinical trial. Get rid of all the products that aren't clinically trial tested. That would be my if that's no, that the makes, that makes sense. you have today, that would be it. Yeah. So in terms of the the milligrams that you're getting, so I was reading the label of your product and yeah. it says so there's 30 milligrams of glucoraph. I know people are going to ask no, this, so I just kind of yeah, want to yeah. put this out there. So there's 30 milligrams of glucoraphin in, in two tablets, which means one tablet has 15. Now you said there's 35% uh, bioavailability. So my math leads me to each tablet being 5.25 milligrams now am i going wrong or like if somebody wants to know how much sulforaphane they're getting when taking your yeah. product we know that 35 percent is an average right so if we're basing it on the average does that mean they're getting on average 5.25 per tablet so close you're almost there and don't feel bad and again like we're not grading this um then <laughs> we, we talked about the reference to middle school high school and college biology now you have to go back to chemistry and so what we learned in chemistry was molecular weight. And so you have to figure this out. So the glucoraphanin um, molecular weight is 437.5 grams per mole. The molecular weight of sulforaphane is 177.9 grams per mole. So they're not equidistant or equal to each other. So it right. has impact. So what it is is, and our, our, the way our product, so I created the product originally, we have no less than 30 milligrams of starting glucoraphanin. We actually have 32 on most of our lots. You know, we, we have a little bit of wiggle room, plus or minus, say, 3%. And it's because it's a natural product. You know, it's it's coming from fields. They're all up and down the coast of California. But every now and then, the yields are a little bit more and a little bit less. But we never have less than 30 milligrams of glucoraphanin. And that's, and that's per serving, not per pill. That's per serving. That's for two. So you're right. So per right. pill, per tablet, we get uh, 15 milligrams of the glucoraphanin. When you do the 35% conversion, what you end up with is a single tablet will yield 2.27 milligrams of sulforaphane. There's, it's complicated, but remember I said the molecular weight is grams per mole. You might remember from chemistry that a mole is another unit of measure, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we know is that 2.27 um, milligrams of sulforaphane equates to 12.5 micromoles of sulforaphane. And this is important because 
your readers and your, your listeners will, will see studies online and publications and people sometimes do it in micromoles and sometimes they do it in milligrams. So one tablet delivers 2.27 milligrams of sulforaphane, which is 12.5 micromoles of sulforaphane. Two, which is our the normal serving that people end up with or that we recommend for the general health of, and wellness, is going to deliver 4.55 milligrams of sulforaphane or 25 micromoles of sulforaphane. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. No, that makes sense. And I'm glad you explained that because I think there's a lot of confusion out there. And I think with with um, some of the other interviews on sulforaphane and a few regarding Abmacol, nobody really has specified that. There's some guesses out there, but I'm glad now it's finally out there and people know. And then so. to give a good example, so that original study we mentioned in autism in 2014, if you were 100, under 100 pounds, you got 50 micromoles. Oral sulforaphane, if, and Jed made this, Dr. Fahey in his labs, up to 200 pounds, you got 75 micromoles, or sorry, 100 micromoles, and then 150 micromoles. So 50, 100, and 150 micromoles of sulforaphane orally, depending on your weight. But then you do the 70% factor, and that 50 really, you know, at 70% becomes uh, 35 micromoles. So again, that's how we're able to take, that's how they were able to, that same research group is taking our product and then using it in a clinical trial. So they'll take three of our Abmacol for people under 100 pounds, and that gets you, you know, in that 35 micromole range. If that, that makes sense, sense. That we're makes able sense. To, and that's the importance of clinical studies. You can't just make a product and say take seven. You really got to know how much milligrams you're making, you know, how much micromoles you're creating, and then really base it on clinical trials. Because without, it's just it's a it's a wild guess, you know. That right, wet. Right. No, that makes sense. That's great. So. I wanted to jump into talking about like sulfur issues with people. So we know there are people who are sensitive to sulfur-rich compounds, particularly those with certain polymorphisms. Now, given that sulforaphane is a sulfur-rich compound, are there any concerns with those sulfur-sensitive people taking the Abmacol product? I'm keeping a checklist here. That's your fourth great question already of the day. Um, absolutely. <laughs> so, and the nice thing is that since 2011, you know, we've had thousands and thousands of people take this product. I would say probably dozen a year costs up. And I'm one of the ones that, you know, if you call our number, our customer service number, they'll transfer to myself or right now it's Dr. Ron Ketnacker and we will answer the more difficult questions. And one of the questions we get is, I have a sulfur allergy, can I take this? You were asking about how do you really know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to know if you took the glucoraphanine that you actually truly made sulforaphane? And it seemed like a while ago, probably 30 minutes ago, we mentioned that you can measure in a cyclocondensation reaction or mass spec diethylcarbamate metabolites of sulforaphane. This is what ends up in the urine. And a majority of it ends up in the urine, a little bit in the feces. We only test the urine. It's not easy to find labs that want to test your feces. So that's how we can figure out that our products are truly making sulforaphane. So sulforaphane, because of this, you know, there's a there's some um, sulfur entities in there. It's a, it's a double-bonded um, sulfur. We know that's in the sulforaphane molecule itself. And then remember, it starts to get metabolized by glutamatonic transferases and then metabolized further into diethylcarbamates which you measure in our urine, those diethylcarbamates still hold on to the sulfur entity. So it never is a sulfur donor. So we actually That's have and time and time and time again that people with sulfur allergies can take our product and we share with them the breakdown pathway and we've given it to, you know, I have a slide that I sometimes give in talks and I've shared that with many physicians and said, here, this is for your patients. Certainly watch them and we tell, you know, the beautiful thing is that it's crushable. Start with a half a tablet, you know, and see if you get any reaction and go up to one, then one and a half, then two, and then higher, depending on your weight initially. And they can actually see if they're going to have any of the typical things that they get with the sulfur reaction. And so, again, it's not, it's not something you have to worry about, at least because the metabolites that are removed from our body still have the sulfur. It's not a donor. Great. That's excellent. So I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned the 
sort of drug form of sulforaphane, which is a product called prostaphane that I think some people know about. I believe you can only get that product in France currently. And it, it's uh, 70% absorbable. And it's, from what I understand, it's like a stabilized free form of sulforaphane. You know, you, you basically spoke about it. And yeah. there's a study using prostaphane at 60 milligrams a day that showed an 86% slowing of the doubling rate of PSA, also known as prostate-specific antigen. And it was only in 78 subjects, but nonetheless, you know, it was fairly compelling. It was another one where it was uh, 35 milligrams in only 20 subjects, and that was a 57% reduction. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, if someone, let's say, wanted to mimic that study using Avmacol, would that be possible? Yeah, because at the end of the day, sulforaphane is sulforaphane is sulforaphane. Whether you're giving the sulforaphane itself developed in a laboratory or you're giving the precursors, at the end of the day, as shared, we can measure in the urines the end dithiocarbamates and see how much sulforaphane you're delivering. So since ours is 35% bioavailable and that product, when you give sulforaphane is 70%, you would have to double the amount of ours to get to the level that was, was done in those studies. I will argue, you know, my background was in prostate uh, cancer work. Um, you know, we can't recommend as a dietary supplement that you give this for prostate cancer treatment or anything like that. But certainly over the years, we have plenty of people who have taken oral sulforaphane products. We have people globally cause. And because of the GI disturbance, they've switched over to ours. And they still get, you know, for just prostate health protection, they actually do see a drop in PSA. Purely anecdotal, but there's been plenty of studies out there that show that um, sulforaphane can have a nice impact on PSA levels. And remember, that's just one biomarker. We have you know, probably in our blood are millions of biomarkers that we could test. Um, my wife actually did work at Hopkins looking at something called shed microRNAs to look at how serious a prostate uh, cancer is. Like if, for example, if you have a positive biopsy, you know, how do you tell whether to treat or not, whether to do a radical prostatectomy? Um, you can actually look at the blood way beyond P PSA is, I don't want to say so 1960s, but it's like, it's the original thing that they used. We still sure. don't really understand what it even does. There's all kinds of other things now we can do, like microRNAs shed into the blood and, and, and look at the aggressiveness of certain types of cancers. So Yeah. It's so it's interesting. What I liked about that study, what I found to be so compelling is that, yes, I agree. I think PSA is a bit of an antiquated biomarker for prostate cancer. I think still in the conventional circles, conventional medicine, they'll use PSA as a marker to, if it's elevated, to do a biopsy, which I think is yeah. a little bit extreme. But nonetheless, I think we probably would agree that if PSA is elevated, we might not know why it's elevated, but we do know that there is an issue of some sort within the prostate, whether it's enlargement, prostate cancer, whether it's an infection, whether, you know, there's a variety of reasons. So if it's elevated and it goes down, it's a good thing pertaining to the prostate. We just don't know necessarily why it was off in the first place. So that's why I thought it was, yeah. it was such a compelling study. And the fact that we could now, we now have a product that if we choose, we could experiment with it and see if we could reduce our PSA. I, I think that's incredible. And just to get to your point, so for people who, you know, are, are and it's very interesting because, again, my work was in prostate cancer initially and being part of the urology department in the cancer um, center at Johns Hopkins during my time working there, I got to go to lots of wonderful lectures um, from autopsy studies. They know that 70% of men, you know, God forbid, in car accidents, they'll just 
go ahead and, and study and just let's just see, you know, how was the prostate? 70% of men have prostate cancer, 60%, oh, sorry, 70% of 70 year olds, 60% of 60 year olds, 50% of 50 year olds. I'm 47 in October. I have a 47% chance in a couple months that I have prostate cancer. Again, Which is so slow moving, though. It's slow moving. So the key with PSA isn't necessarily the finite amount. But really, for that individual person, let's just see the velocity change. Velocity, of, right, right. Because Tracking with, it. With my dad, for example, with his colon cancer, we look at a biomarker, carcinoembryonic antigen, CEA. Same thing. When he first got it, it was very high. He had surgery. It went away. And then seven years later, it came back. He had a nodule in his right lower lobe of his lung, colon cancer. And his CEA went up again. They took it out, and it went back down. But again, your baseline, you know, there is averages just like average amounts of how much sulforaphane people make, there's averages of what your baseline is. I tell people, don't get too alarmed at your baseline. Yet it's a little higher than the normal. You might be an outlier, but you might just be an outlier. You really want to see the change over a net period of time. It's usually three to six months. The, yeah. your, your doctor will have you come back and take another test and see if that velocity is increasing rapidly. And that's where, again, some of these sulforaphane interventions can actually have a wonderful impact on, um, on that velocity change. Yeah, absolutely. So, I wanted to now pivot to talking about goitrogens. So I know there's people who want me to bring it up. Now, we know that broccoli technically is a goitrogen, meaning it can block iodine uptake in the thyroid, which could lead to the growth of thyroid tissue. Now, with that said, does Avmacol present with the same potential uh, goitrogenic effects that broccoli and broccoli sprouts do? So we get asked all the time about the sulfur allergies and we get asked all the time about goitrogen. And it turns out that there is a case report of a woman who ingested kale, uh, kale drinks every morning and wound up with problems. And so I think that blankly then applied to all the crucifers out there. Right. And they just say blankly, isothiocyanates block iodine absorption and can cause you know, your pituitary to increase the production of thyroid stimulating hormone and you get a goiter and an enlarged thyroid. Well, it turns out the best way to study this isn't to guess and wag and try to, you know, just assume things, but why don't you do a clinical study? So believe it or not, my colleague, um, he was actually my postdoc mentor, Dr. Tom Kensler, did a study in China looking at um, 45 females that ingested over 84 days, believe it or not, 600 micromoles, that's a large amount of glucoraphanine, and um 40 micromoles of sulforaphane. So again, high amounts of sulforaphane and the sulforaphane precursor in a drink every morning for 84 straight days, 45 females, because mostly females have the thyroid issues. So long story short, what they found is compared to placebo, there was absolutely no change in thyroid stimulating hormone, T3, T4. My colleagues at Hopkins, Dr. Shapiro, Tale, Fahey, and others did an inpatient study looking at people ingesting the glucoraphanin, sulforaphane, two different levels of glucoraphanin and sulforaphane. And again, they measured 32 different hematologic kind of markers, including TSH, T3, T4. We've never seen any problems with giving glucoraphanin and sulforaphane. And again, mm. I always share, trust me, because we make other products. If somebody's going to have a problem, they will cause as with an adverse event. In all these years, we've never had a problem with anybody with um, a thyroid issues, if anything in the literature, there's some animal work that tends to show that if people have hypothyroidism, sulforaphane can actually help, actually helps with thyroid issues. So I think we have to be really cautious. And I think, again, I've, I've heard this before, and I think it comes from this one case report from an overabundant kale, absorb, uh, kale user who put in their brain smoothies for months and ended up with, I believe, a gorder. So interesting. So again, there's studies out there published. Um, and if you go and look up um, 
Kenzer et al. 2019, he just published the study in those 45 females taking high amounts of glucuraphane and sulforaphane combined. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. For those who are extra sensitive and extra cautious, and let's say anecdotally, they've found that taking excess amount of broccoli, particularly raw broccoli, they might have a certain constellation of polymorphisms that make, let's say, make them more prone. Would you say that the abmacol, maybe based on how it's processed, may remove any potential even trace amounts of goitrogens that potentially could cause goiter in those people who may have a predisposition? Well, it's funny. So our product is made from different entities and the um, broccoli seed extract that provides our glucuraphanate. I've caught up and asked, do you guys test for goitrogens? And there's so many of these compounds. So it's really hard. You need a mass spec. So it's pretty complicated. We have one in our plant, actually. And I have a meeting Wednesday with the head of quality. I am, because of this question now, I, I'm going to just ask, hey, let's just test our final product once and for all, you know, to show that there's no like, and the other thing too, is we don't know like, what is a safe level? What's a safe upper limit of goitrogens? You know, so that's also a, a, an interesting thing. And do they get metabolized maybe by some of the very enzymes that sulforaphane is able to upregulate? So there's a whole bunch of interesting questions. But I know that there were, we found out from the hot water extract that allows for the glucuraphanin to be processed in our broccoli seed extract that there are no goitrogens present. And when I asked the, uh, you know, the manufacturer of that specific raw material. So again, since 2011, we've had thousands of women that have taken our product and we've never had a single person come back with any issues. I wouldn't recommend to take it if you have hypothyroidism just based on that animal study, but at least it makes me rest more comfortably. You know, my mom's taken it and she years ago had thyroid issues and she's She's been on sprouts originally when I was in the lab. Then when we made Abmacol, she's been taking it every day now for nine years, and she's not had any of her thyroid issues come back. So I'm feeling a little good anecdotally, N equals one. But again, the, the literature suggests it helps with hypothyroid. The one thing that I keep hearing about out there is based on this kale, um, this kale overuser. And um, I, I think we're going to be okay. But, uh, you know, all of our clinical studies, we continue to test for TSH, T3, T4. It's one of the standard panels that we look at on safety. Remember what I said, make sure every dietary supplement has gone through clinical trials. We're testing for thyroid all the time. You know, we should be doing that for all these dietary supplements that we, that we're manufacturing. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm glad you cleared that up. That's great. So yeah. that actually leads me to my next question, which is, it's going to be a long one, but yeah, I, I definitely wanted to ask this. So I wanted to bring up Dr. Paul Saladino, who, as you may know, is not at all a fan of sulforaphane. Now it's interesting because he does acknowledge the benefits of sulforaphane, particularly regarding its hormetic effects and how that leads to the activation of NRF2. And, you know, he's even pointed out then ultimately increases glutathione and so forth. And now you and I both know that sulforaphane does way more than that, but that's specifically what I've heard him acknowledge about sulforaphane anyway. So really his only issue seems to be the goitrogenic effect that sulforaphane mm -hmm. is thought to have. And he feels if we simply partake in what he refers to as environmental hormesis by engaging in cold and heat exposure, exercise, vigorous exercise, fasting, et cetera, as well as a ketogenic diagnosis, then with that said, why even take sulforaphane, right? If there's that possible side effect that sulforaphane has, which environmental hormesis doesn't. So with that said, do you feel his concerns are perhaps unfounded, particularly in light of Abmacol's well-established uh, safety profile? And if so, do you perhaps feel that combining molecular hormesis of sulforaphane with environmental hormesis can maybe have an additive effect or possibly even a synergistic effect? 
I would absolutely. I know that was long winded, but it had to be said. Wasn't long winded, and for personal reasons, I am looking into getting a sauna, so a NIRR sauna. Um, and I think absolutely, I think it's nice to kind of play around with as many things that can promote health and wellness. Um, Dr. Saladino, I, I, I definitely know he raised the concern, and, and maybe it was based on. I'd like to, you know, find out what it was truly based on, but maybe it was that um, report that's out there again on the kale consumer that has a lot of people worried. You know, we have um, other products where all it takes is one. You know, to all of a sudden sound the alarm, and it's kind of it's really interesting. You know, I always joke around. My background was in oncology. Uh, Doctor Rubison, which is used for, and, and my postdoc work was on breast cancer with sulforaphane. But Doctor Rubison is used as frontline treatment for early stage breast cancer, stage one, stage two. It causes about fifteen to thirty percent chronic cardiotoxicity. Oh. I mean, but yet we give it. I mean, as I'm talking, we're talking thousands of women across the U.S. and tens of thousands in the world are taking Doctor Rubison knowing that you know a huge majority are going to have this problem we have a case report of one person who can say kale and copious right amount. right right like like to squash an entire phytonutrient i'm not discounting what he says but i just think um i like to see uh, more than just case reports that are yeah and i think we have to be careful when we squash an entire class of phytonutrients or yeah. or vegetables because of that concern and again if anything the science is looking like as i shared with um you know, we've done 82 days, 84 days on a high amount of glucuraphane and sulforaphane not having any impact on the thyroid. That's pretty, pretty, to me, that's a lot better than a, a case report that, you know, may have some probable cause. So I'll just leave it at that. I don't sure. Know. Well, and I would even add to that. If you have someone who has like a chronic condition or if they have something severe like cancer, they might not be able to engage in environmental hormesis, at least to the degree to which someone like himself or you or, or I can, if they are frail they're, frail, they're elderly and or they're severely sick. So to me, even if there is merit to what his concern is, I think sometimes if you're doing a cost benefit analysis and someone is that severely sick, in those cases, I think it would be certainly worth it, especially if there isn't an alternative with using environmental hormesis. Not everyone could really do that. At least not everyone could do all the elements of environmental hormesis. I mean, yes, they could do diet and so forth, but not everyone could do the exercise that would actually stimulate that hormetic effect if they are that frail. It could take time to get there and they might not have time. Also, not everyone could afford a sauna. Not everyone yeah. even has the ability to withstand that kind of cold for that duration of time that would actually elicit a hormetic effect. So yeah, I, I just think it's it's a lot more for those particular individuals, I think, to actually take away a product that may possibly have an adverse effect on the thyroid that we don't even know. Personally, I just feel as being a little short-sighted and not having all hands on deck in a potentially emergency situation at times. So, Well, I'll tell you another thing. I told you my mom had cancer. She's a cancer survivor of the uterus, but she also has ulcerative colitis. And before her journey into sulforaphane, she was taking a pharmaceutical called Asacol. I don't know if you guys know about this, but it's very toxic, nephrotoxic. I actually had one of my mentors at Hopkins almost died from the same exact drug. And he was in the pharmacology program, was a you know, one of my mentors on my thesis committee. And, and that got me really concerned. So we started putting my mom on the sprouts. And then once we got Amicol, we put on that. Happy to say she's titrated down off of that. And she's able to, she hasn't had any bouts of ulcerative colitis all these years on our product. The thing wow. about you can't because ulcerative colitis consume copious amounts of broccoli. You know, like, again, you, you got to be really lucky to get broccoli, mature broccoli that has both glucuraphane and, and morastase, but we know you're going to need pounds probably if you even are lucky enough to have some to get enough. People with ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel, Crohn's, 
they're not able to consume crucifer. So we're actually able to provide for them in a supplement, something I never thought in a million years I would go from the medical side to say, hey, you know, I'm promoting supplements, but at, at the right, you know, the right ones that are well studied. Absolutely, my mom is now able to get the benefits of sulforaphane without causing her harm, which raw crucifers can do to anybody who has GI issues. So yeah, that's, definitely just like, yeah. you know, not having the resources for the NRR, not everybody has the resources to consume just in the diet alone because of other, you know, underlying conditions, uh, certain things, especially in high amounts. 100%. That makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to ask you about the other compound that I think oftentimes people get confused with sulforaphane, which is DIM. And I think it makes sense because, right, they're both derivatives of the broccoli, the broccoli family. So would you help explain how these two compounds are different? Sure. And DIM is another one of these, you know, amazing phytochemicals, phytonutrients. The main difference I would say is what happened. We talked on purpose about early on, if you remember, these environmental toxins come into our body. Remember I said the first line is going to be your liver, your respiratory tract, in your intestines. And there's an initial cytochrome P450 phase one enzymes that start to break these down from something fat-soluble into something that's going to be water-soluble. You need phase one enzymes and those phase two enzymes upregulated by NERF2, that transcription factor. Unfortunately, the phase one enzymes largely produce these reactive intermediates that can be really damaging. And we can talk about, for example, FIP, the heterocyclic amine, if you want to. It ties into my dad's colon cancer. Um, but what happens is, is sulforaphane, by and large, upregulates phase two enzymes, heat shock proteins, downregulates the inflammatory response. DIM, unfortunately, upregulates both phase one and phase two enzymes. So the problem is, is when you're upregulating phase one enzymes, it sounds good because it's part of that two-step process to remove these toxicants and get them water-soluble, but you're increasing the amount sometimes of these um, intermediates from phase one reactions. So there alone, I think, is the big kind of intersection where the two kind of go off track. And I think because of that, groups like the ones that I learned off of kind of went into sulforaphane direction instead of dim, knowing that, oh, you know what? Phase one is a little murky, a little dangerous. Phase two, it's only good. I mean, I don't know of any problems if you overproduce phase two enzymes. They're doing all these wonderful things, taking reactive oxygen species, quenching them into allowing them to be removed from the body. But phase one, you start to question, is that a healthy thing? And I know of no dietary supplements that do only induce phase one enzymes. You don't want to. You're going to create these reactive intermediates at the cellular level. So right, that's a right. big difference. And, and studies as well. There's just not a lot of studies that have been done on DIM compared to the vast amount of literature out there if you do like a PubMed search or Google Scholar search for um, sulforaphane. I think it's probably because of that safety profile. Yeah. So I, I also actually wanted to add to that. So with regard to DIM and sulforaphane, I think a lot of people in the functional medicine world, they know of DIM and sulforaphane for that matter in the context of estrogen metabolism. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's a lot easier to obtain DIM. You know, it's there's not nearly as many sulforaphane products that actually get the absorbability. There's Abmacol, and that's really it, unless you live in France. So I think what people need to know is is that DIM, to your point, it works primarily on phase, particularly in the estrogen detoxification is what I'm discussing now, is it works on phase one of detoxification, which is hydroxylation. So in terms of estrogen, it helps estrogen go down the 2-hydroxyestrone pathway, which is less cancerous, and that's the I think you had mentioned the CYP1A1 enzyme, but sulforaphane, which you know, works in a totally different, it works in an entirely different way than DIM. It works by inducing quinone reductase, which helps to neutralize the DNA damaging quinones that come from the four hydroxy estrogens that ideally would get methylated by COMT 
and then you know converted into four methoxy estrone, which is essentially benign. But those who don't methylate well, the quinone reductase then acts as you know like a backup generator, yep. neutralizing the DNA damaging quinones. And glutathione as transferase does that as well. And sulforaphane induces both of them. And right, and yep. these right, the quinones are oftentimes at the heart of some of these hormone dependent cancers like breast cancer, for example. So I just think DIM is, it's not better or worse. It's just different, at least in estrogen metabolism, it's essentially different. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, but I think that that's something that's very confusing to a lot of people. Women menstruating women will oftentimes take DIM and it'll, it'll screw with their menstrual cycle because it will lower total estrogen and won't work directly on those quinones and the metabolites of estrogen, which I yeah. think they're probably more wanting to target. So and Exactly right. And it's funny that we got an hour and 15 minutes. My favorite enzyme is quinone oxidoreductase, NQO1, for those who want to look it up maybe on PubMed or Google Scholar. And exactly right, the most dangerous estrogen quinones or estrogen metabolites are the estrogen quinones and quinone oxidoreductase takes those quinones and metabolizes them so they're no longer harmful. Um, they can bind to DNA proteins and lipids. There's actually studies you can do using a mass spec, which is this amazing piece of equipment. You can take specimens from a woman's breast who might have cancer and literally see DNA quinone estrogen metabolites, kind of kind of this, this conjugation, these literally bound to DNA causing mutations when the cell goes to divide. So pretty dangerous. And yeah, sulforaphane induces quinone oxidoreductase. It's what we look at in the lab. So when we get in new raw materials, we always test them in our lab and cell culture. And we look at um, HSP32, which is heme oxygenase, a heat shock protein. And we look at quinone oxidoreductase, the ability to induce both of those. Um, and it's one of my favorite metabolites just because of the work I had done prior on breast cancer protection. And it's one of those enzymes, as I said earlier, I don't see any harm in having lots of NQ01 quinone oxidoreductase elevated in our cells. It does, quinones are really dangerous. These are these double bonded oxygens from organic chemistry that are really reactive. And if you can quench them and, and kind of reduce them, um, that's a wonderful thing. And that's what this enzyme does. So yeah, yeah, that's great. It's great. Do, do you guys ever test um, in your lab for the 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is like an indirect um, yeah. oxidative stress marker? We don't, but I, and it's something um, I definitely want to start looking at this in some of our, our future clinical studies. We have five actually in the works right now with our Abmacol Estrogen product, that one that had the beta glucans. I absolutely want to taste eight, test 8-hydroxy-DG, usually done through a mass spec. So it would have to be usually an academic uh, partner. And that's mostly all the people that we do our studies with are in the world of academia, never CRO at this point in time for Abmacol studies. So um, yeah, I think we'll ask to test 8-hydroxy-DG, which is another one of these markers of kind of DNA damage at the cellular level for those who don't know. Right. And so, so just for the audience, um, right, it's basically, it's looking for DNA fragments that are measured in the urine, which then gives like an indirect insight as to the degree of oxidative stress that's occurring. So basically, good rule of thumb, if your DNA is breaking down, you probably have some oxidative stress, right? Like, yeah, bottom yeah. line. <laughs> Pretty okay. much. And that's a great indicator to show exactly your overall. I don't think a very well person is going to have a lot of these fragments in 8-hydroxy-DG in, in their urine. Or, yeah, right, but there's a, right, there's a spectrum ultimately, right? So yeah. like even a well person might have trace amounts. You, know, yeah. you want as little as possible. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's jump into heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, right? So Absolutely. first, let's maybe define what they are. I know you had brought it up a little bit and then you know how they affect us and also if Abmacol 
can help in its mitigation. So in 1996, as I shared, my father was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, no family history whatsoever. So we were like, how is this even possible? He had been my, my older brother and I, um, you know, our baseball coach, soccer coaches, lots of things. And by the time, you know, between my brother and I, we were four years apart, my surviving brother, um, pretty much every day, it seemed like we were going out for fast food, which isn't good. You know, it was horrible, but, you know, we worked out so much, it wasn't a big problem. But the problem was we were consuming a lot of meat. And it turns out that the more meat that you consume, especially cooked meat, and it doesn't just have to be red meat, right? It, it can be fish. It can be chicken. So people forget even, you know, grilled meats, the proteins and the fats come together and they can form these heterocyclic amines, these hydrocarbons. And this is very interesting in terms of metabolism. So, um we're going to make it short because it's a unusually hard name to pronounce, but FIP. So in 1997 and eight, when I first got introduced to sulforaphane, I was working with and, and met a, a gentleman, Chad Nelson, who was getting his thesis work. He was working on heterocyclic amines and sulforaphane modulation. So that's when my first project with sulforaphane was looking at this question of heterocyclic amines. So one of these heterocyclic amines, it's on the charred parts of meat. It's called FIP, and FIP by itself is completely inert. Again, it's on the charred parts of meat when you take it off of a grill. We ingest it. That FIP goes into our you know, GI tract, goes through our colon walls, into our bloodstream, into our liver, where the phase one enzymes, remember those cytochrome P450s, we were talking about DIM, induces phase one enzymes. The phase one enzymes don't mean to do this, but the N-hydroxy group, so now you have hydroxy FIP, and that hydroxy group is just nothing more than oxygen and hydrogen, bound to this inert chemical FIP that's found in charred meat, that then actually literally swims into our nucleus and binds to DNA. And just like we can measure quinone estrogen metabolites bind to DNA, you can measure in breast, prostate, and colon tumor cells, you can measure these FIP hydroxy DNA adducts. And it's really dangerous when you have them because it causes mutation and that can lead to carcinogenesis. So again, phase one enzymes take FIP, cause this reactive intermediate, and then uracilglycosyl transferases, which are a class of phase two enzymes, will further break down FIP into this big glucuronide that's so bulky, it can't go into nucleus anymore. It actually goes and ends up in our urine and we pee it out. So there's actually work that's been done on sulforaphane where you can take a charred meal, you can look this up on PubMed or Google Scholar, you can take a charred meal and quantitate how much FIP is going in, then we could actually measure the urines of people who take a placebo or a lots of crucifers or a product like an Abacol, you'll see how much of the um, shed uh, glucuronide fit metabolite, heterocyclic amine metabolite is in the urine. The more in the urine, the less it's actually bound to our DNA and proteins and lipids. And that's a great thing, right? You want to remove it from our body, not keep it in our cells. So these heterocyclic amines are really dangerous. And also, you know, charred meat has been shown to increase the 4-hydroxy estrones as well. So with yep. Avmacol, you're not only lowering the potential harm with getting those heterocyclic amines by raising the 4-hydroxy estrones, you're also increasing quinone reductase and glutathione as transferase. So in respect to hormone-driven cancers, I mean, Avmacol just does, you know, there's so many wide-ranging uses for it in that context. So... And there's another thing. So we're kind of on that same phase one, phase two. So most people know about benzene. Um, you know, if you're a fracking sure. or know about an anti-fracker, uh, benzene is, is, is the top 10 kind of created chemicals in the United States. It's found in everything, but um, it's found in car exhaust. You know, so I'm a commuter. I drive 55 miles to and from my home to the plant where we um, have our labs and we developed our products. 
I'm exposed to a lot of benzene. The benzene quinone metabolites are the most dangerous. They're again quinone oxidoreductase. Oh, there you go. The, the face enzyme helps to get rid of these uh, dangerous benzene quinones. Very similar. Benzene has all the same kind of problems as these heteroceptic amines at the cellular level. All these chemicals, you know, that aren't that are kind of man-made, or we didn't traditionally uh, ingest or, or have in our bodies thousands of years ago. The nice thing is we have these systems. I say it's like a dimmer switch. That light is always on with these phase two enzymes. But what sulforaphane does, it really ramps it up to like another level significantly, and you're really brighten up that light. And we see that in some of our protein work. We can actually do aminohistochemistry, look at cells, and um, their green staining. We see a little bit in the in the uh, placebo group. And then when we give our sulforaphane at those adjusted levels, it's a bright green light at the cellular level. And it's beautiful. It looks like that dimmer switch. You're ramping up the production of yeah. phase two enzyme at the cellular level. That's awesome. That's, that's yeah. amazing. So Brian, we're about out of time. Before we close out, tell the listeners where they could learn more about you and your work with Admacall. Yeah, so one of the, the best things you can do is to go into admacall.com. My last name, Cornblatt, you could just do a Google search. Some of the talks I've given you know, around the country um, are found sometimes, you know, not by us, but the, the people who put these conferences together, you might be able to see some of the work. And I got dive a little bit um, deeper into this. Um, publications, PubMed, Google Scholar, just look up my last name, Cornblatt. And so forth, and you'll see that. If you want to see more about the clinical studies, so my main job as a medical director for Nutrigen and the medical director for the Amical line is I do clinical studies. We have over 20 human clinical studies on this product alone, five in the works. I just That's incredible. Product. Brian, this has been awesome. I really, I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me about this. I had a really good time. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks for all you do. You know, we need people, more and more people like you at the at the kind of ground level there, educating folks. It's a lot of complicated stuff, but there's a lot of great products out there and great ways that we can really biohack and promote health and wellness. And uh, you're leading the charge here, helping to get people to do that. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. You as well. Thanks so much. Okay, stay well. Well, there you guys have it. As you can tell, Dr. Kornblatt is the man, right? Not only is he an endless wealth of knowledge regarding sulforaphane specifically, but he also knows and understands the art and science of detoxification in a way that many claim they understand, but he actually does, right? He's sort of become my new sort of go-to phone-a-friend if I ever get stumped on any of the scientific literature that I'm attempting to tease out. And let's just say he's yet to let me down. Now, I just wanted to remind you guys again to hit that plus sign on the top right of the podcast page. And also let me know what you guys thought of the show by leaving me a review. Well, that about does it for today. And until next time, take care, everyone. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.